Can you hear me? Great. So tonight, um, I would like to talk about one of my favorite topics, and that is uh, the opposite of anatta. <laughs> the eye-making and mind-making. It's actually in Pali called mana, or conceit. It's one of my favorite topics because there's a lot going on in there around that. <laughs> and I know it's not personal. It's a lot going on in all of us about that. So I really love to read what the Buddha taught Rahula, his son. Because even though, you know, he was an enlightened being and he probably had a wonderful, detached, deep love for his son, I always think that he probably gave him all the really good stuff too, don't you think? <laughs> what did the Buddha teach Rahula? So right before, when, when Rahula was a boy, uh, the Buddha was teaching Rahula how to meditate. And it said that before he taught him anapanasati, or mindfulness of breath, he actually gave him 10 pointers that he thought were really important before he started meditation or uh, to prepare him to practice meditation. Um, the first four things that the Buddha taught Rahula, his son, was he taught him four elements meditation. He taught him to uh, that when he was meditating, when he felt hardness and stability and denseness, that he might think of that as earth. Because the earth can hold anything and doesn't flinch. It just has a lot of solidity. And he taught, uh, he taught him that when there was a temperature element of what was predominant in his uh, field of awareness, that he might regard that as fire element. And when there was water or digestion or some sense of solidity that he might recognize that as the water element. And with the breath, he taught him that he might recognize that as air element. So that was the first four things that the Buddha taught his son. And then the next four things that he taught his son was the four Brahma-viharas about how to uh, understand that benevolence and goodwill, you know, however it's manifest, depending on what it's looking at, uh, that those four things were an important part of meditation as well. So he taught uh, his son how to do metta meditation, uh, loving kindness, and how to do uh, karuna, compassion, and mudita, sympathetic joy, and dupeka, equanimity meditation. He taught him that. So that was the next four things, so that was eight things. And then the ninth thing he taught his young son, which I thought was, of course, totally appropriate, was how to counteract lust in meditation. How to see, how to just really uh, take in the body without a lot of identification, without a lot of um, conceptual overlay, you know, of it being beautiful and consistent and free from suffering and personal. So he taught him how to 
contemplate um, just the parts of the body to overcome lust. And then the final thing that he taught his son, which is what I'm talking about tonight, in the final preparation before teaching Rahula meditation, the Buddha taught him something that usually is considered to be a very advanced teaching. It's considered to be a pretty uh, deep teaching, and that was to understand and see as much as he could the perception of inconsistency or the perception of um, anicca or impermanence in order to counteract the conceit, I am. In, in order to really use mindfulness, use samasati, right mindfulness and satisampajanya, um, mindfulness and clear comprehension, to see how eyeing and mind happens so often. He said, you know, look for this. This is something that you should really notice. And why did he do that? You know, we all know that the Buddha was great at lists. He was just so incredible. And one of his good lists is he has a list of um, seven, seven latent tendencies, actually also known as the seven latent torments. And what are those? Those are... Um, those are qualities of mind. Actually, their root is the three root poisons of greed, hatred, and delusion. But they're how they show up in our daily life. And they are, for the most part, really unconscious and uh, very uh, difficult to see. You wouldn't know that they were there unless you were specifically looking for them. And the Buddha says, actually, you should look for these things. And... Um, the um, one of the ones that I'm going to talk about tonight is mana, conceit, or pride. And so uh, three of these seven latent torments, uh, one of them, of course, is the uh, wonderful tanha, which is uh, craving. And, uh, you know, the Buddha is so specific about what different manifestations of conceit are actually uh, brought into being. You know, they don't really exist, but the uh, delusion of them are brought into being in different ways. And he says, uh, this is mine, is specifically brought into being through uh, the mental factor of tanha or craving. So this is mine. That is what is created. This is mine. And then there's a second type of eyeing and mying, and that is this I am. And that conceptualization of selfing, or this is what I am, you know, this is my existence, is brought through by the mental, the unwholesome mental factor of conceit. And this is mana, conceit. And then there's a third one, and this one is this is myself. And there's, you know, subtle differences to those three. And this, in, this is myself is um, Sakaya Ditti, is the belief in a permanent self. So it's not only this is myself, but everyone has a self. You know, um, some people might liken it to that there is some entity with a, a soul. Not that you can't believe in a soul. <laughs> 
Some people still believe in the soul. They don't want to. <laughs> they don't want to trigger anybody. <laughs> but um, you know that's not what the Buddha taught. He didn't teach that there was a soul. And this uh, this uh, I making. This I am and this is myself. So those are the three. This is mine. That's Tanha. This I am. That's Mana. And this is myself is uh, Dita or Sakaya Ditti, wrong view. So those are the three types of eyeing and Maying. And I'm going to be talking specifically tonight about the second one. This I am. So uh, what does Mana mean? What are... You know, one of the ways that we study what the Buddha taught was to just first look at the translation, right? Because this translation could give us a lot of information about what the Buddha really meant by something. We should never just go on the first translation. We should always try to see how other people translate some of these terms. And I love this idea of what mana means. So um, mana is, uh, has been translated as conceit, another good one is pride, pride, arrogance, haughtiness. But my favorite um, translation of mana is actually measuring. It's measuring. It's the constant measuring of self against others. Against others, real or imagined. Actually, all imagined, really. <laughs> so it's measurement. It's a conceptual overlay. And um, it's one of those um, latent torments or latent uh, factors that is uh, really hard to see, but it, it really, uh, because it's related to the selfing of you know the three root poisons of uh, selfing, not seeing the truth of anatta, anicca, or uh, dukkha, it really has a huge impact on our suffering and how we cling to things in the world. And uh, so it's measurement. And uh, the Buddha was also really great because we, when we think of conceit in the Western sense of it, we think of, oh, just thinking that we're better than everybody else, right? Arrogance or pride. But actually, this teaching has three ways that we often measure ourselves, three separate dimensions of measuring. There is, I am better than they, her, her or him. So it's better than conceit, arrogance. I am worse than they, her or she. So it's uh, worse than also. The conceit of self-loathing. And also I am equal to they, him or she. So it's also the same as. So you can see why measurement is probably a better translation of mana than maybe some of the others that have more implicit in it one way that we are doing the measuring. And so what's, uh, let's think about them for a second. What does superiority conceit look like? And we know, you know, we probably don't see that very often. Well, I don't know if you do. Maybe you do. Maybe you're seeing the way that uh, these thoughts arise that, you know, I like to say that we think that we're making those thoughts, but those thoughts are actually making us. Just having those thoughts over and over, that habitual um, way of 
looking at the world, looking at it through the lens of, um, you know, wrong view of thinking that, you know, a duality of me, 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 and then everything else, everything else separate from that. So what does superiority conceit look like? It's arrogance or, so just thoughts that might arise in your head. And you know, it's, there's nobody having these thoughts. These are just forces that we have in this mind-body process. So we don't necessarily need to, get, need to get angry about it, but it's excellent to see it. It's a force of uh, this clinging, this wanting in our heart-mind. And it's uh, measuring better than. So it's like, you know, I'm the first one in the hall for the sitting, or I'm the last one out of the hall at the sitting. Or, um, you know, I'm so happy I'm walking really slowly compared to maybe somebody else. And, uh, you know, we might s see thoughts arising that are bragging or proclaiming our excellence or just how great we are. One way that we do this is that we might be, <laughs> and I saw this on the last retreat I just did a month ago, how we were going to uh, tell our friends about how our retreat was, <laughs> right? We, we find ourselves rehearsing the conversations we'll have with our friends or partners or recount, uh, recounting our trials and uh, triumphs, our uh, trials and tribulations all of the dukkha that we endured, you know, all of the insights that we've had. We will be uh, very proud of our heroism because this is hard work, it is. You know, just opening to, the, to reality. It can be hard work. And then, um, so that's superiority conceit. And you can think about how else that shows up for us. And then we, can, we might get deflated when we actually go home and tell our friends and they all, they just want to know, that's really great and don't forget to take the garbage out. <laughs> they don't necessarily get just how wonderful that we have become. <laughs> so that's one kind of uh, conceit or the way that this... Uh, this I am shows up for us, but also the opposite is true. The opposite is also a manifestation of, of this I am, and that is inferiority conceit. And that's probably incredibly familiar to many of us as well, right? I had it right before I walked in this room. <laughs> and I saw it, oh yeah, so you're nervous about doing the talk, yeah because you just don't want to be worse than anybody else giving a talk. So. <laughs> it was that measuring, right? And uh, many of us have grown up with a, a chronic sense of unworthiness. In fact, some, I've read some psychology that says that um, you can't either have superiority conceit without actually having its opposite as well, right? And, and for those of us who... Uh, think that we only have the inferiority conceit or we only have a bad sense of self, that same is also true that, you know, the, bad sen uh, the inferiority conceit actually might be hiding a sense of uh, superiority or arrogance or a sense of uh, in some things being better than. 
So the two actually really go together. And we know what this feels like. It's a a chronic sense of unworthiness. And, you know, unfortunately, some of our systems of our culture is based on convincing us that we need stuff in order to be okay, right? I mean, our... um, our economic system is actually kind of based on that, that you better get this or you better get that or you better look like this or do that in order to be okay. And we get that, you know, message quite a bit all the time. So what does it look like in retreat when we're rocking around? Just seeing, you know, how we're not okay in this moment. And sometimes we take it very personally, like just struggle with it. You know, inferiority arises and then we have aversion to the inferiority because it feels like us, right? It doesn't, you know, when our mindfulness is strong, we can see it as just another interesting mental object that has some uh, propensity to arise in our mind. And we see it as that, not so personal. We see it in the middle of uh, repression and indulgence. You know, that's one other way to think about the middle path. We hold mindfulness between any extremes and see the truth of it is just a habit pattern that's arising in the moment and it might not feel so uh, close to us. But much of the time we feel like this is me, this is who I am, this is how I am defined by myself and by others. So that's inferiority conceit. And then there is equality conceit. I love that one. So what do we mean by equality? Uh, conceit. And that is, you know, feeling like maybe your um, effort to practice is not well balanced. You're either overstriving or maybe kind of taking it easy for a while. And then seeing other people who you can interpret as also having the same thing and thinking, oh yeah, we're all in the same boat here. We're all just slogging through, trying to get through, you know. We're all trying to find something good to eat and have a cup of tea and getting enough sleep. Or, um, you know, we might see people who are taking a nice nature walk and enjoying, um, you know, look like they're really enjoying themselves and think, yeah, you know, that's what we're all trying to do. We're just all trying to extract as much happiness out of this experience as we can. You know, just feeling like we're all in the same boat here. And um, equality conceit also manifests itself as thinking, well, no one really deserves any special attention because we're all the same here. You know, someone shouldn't get a special room or shouldn't have a special food prepared for them or, you know, people who need a special accommodation. You know, that's kind of unfair because we're all the same here. Or, you know, why aren't the, uh, why are there certain categories of people who have more access to scholarship than others? You know, we all should have the same access to all of that. So that would be one manifestation of uh, equality conceit. Sameness is both comforting and reassuring that um, we all have the same level of greed, hatred, and delusion going on. 
so those are three ways, three different dimensions of the um, of the um, mental factor of conceit. And then, in addition to those three dimensions, uh, the Buddhist teachings also tell us that there are uh, specific areas of our life that we manifest these three ways of measuring, measuring ourself against others. And remember, these are um, latent torments, so they're often really not easy to see. You know, we have to look very specifically for how they might show up in an emotional attitude or um, a thought or what it might motivate us to do or an emotion that it might uh, give rise to. And the first one, I really love these, the first one is jatamana, measurement by birth. And I guess back in the Buddhist time, and actually still right now, I guess in India, I don't really know about this, so I don't want to say anything about it, but there are different caste systems that, um, and I think that's what the Buddha was referring to back in that time. But as all of us probably know, we still have a caste system here. We have a caste system here in our Western world. And... Um, So uh, Jatamana, the measurement my birth, could be if, you know, you belong to a famous family or if you're a second or third generation Buddhist, maybe. That carries a little bit of uh, birth mana. <laughs> or maybe if we're, if we're from a special town or a nation, actually right now, you know, we can see that being from certain nations is more opportune or less opportune. And we might have a lot of nationalism and patriotism. We know that people's immigration status has a huge impact on how they experience the world. And, and those of us with, you know, natural born citizens who've been here a while, many of us don't even realize what that's like to have an immigration status. You know, that's one of those invisible aspects of uh, jatamana or birth that has an impact on us, and we don't even see it. One of my favorite, um, uh, one of my favorite stories about jatamana is actually uh, something that's had, had a huge impact on me and generations of my family and I could say actually all of us here, and that was something in the 15th century by the Pope, something called the Doctrine of Discovery. I don't know if you guys know what that is. That was a 15th century papal bull who said that Christians could explore the world and that they had the right to discover land regardless who was already there and that they could lay claim to, to the land for Christianity. Uh, particularly if the land was inhabited by people who weren't Christians. And actually I learned a little bit uh, more about that lately, uh, inhabited by people who actually didn't have a deity as a way to understand the world. If there was no deity, then 
you know, all bets were off. You could totally claim, claim the land. And then, you know, if the so-called pagan inhabitants couldn't be converted, uh, that you could spare them if you wanted, but you could also enslave them or kill them. And, you know, the, the, the land was yours for the taking. So that was one big, you know, made-up story <laughs> that's had a huge impact on a lot of people for many hundreds of years. And um, actually, the U.S. Supreme Court um, confirmed that decision in an 1823 decision between the Supreme Court that the doctrine of, of discovery was still alive and well in the United States. And, you know, many of us, you know, we never think of that. I never think of that except when I'm giving this talk. But I can see how that's manifested unconsciously and how we, f we feel about people all the time. <coughs> It's really a very invisible thing, but I'm doing this other work. I'm editing a book for my other job as a professor of social work and public health, and there's something about um, this wonderful scholar, uh, Boaventura de Souza Santos. I don't know if any of you know him. He has this wonderful saying about, he has this... Uh, theory about, or the social critical theory about the abysmal line, and that much of the world lives below the abysmal line, and though we don't even see it, they're not considered as human as people above the abysmal line. And you can look at the truth of that in budgets, just budgets. You know, U.S. federal budgets will tell you who is above that line and who is below it. And I love the fact that, you know, one big social movement right, like, right now, Black Lives Matter, just the name of that, Black Lives Matter, gets at the heart of that, what is thought about that abysmal line. And we don't often see that. That's really invisible to us without, you know, looking more closely. But that's just one way that Jatamana is uh, manifest. It's up for me as a mixed-race Native person because that's still in effect nowadays. So, you know, how does that affect my identity? I can feel like a victim a lot. And, um, and that, that engenders a, a, a feeling of blame in me that everyone else and that external conditions are the causes of my suffering or happiness. And that's just absolutely not true. I mean, that's not what the Buddha taught. That uh, things have to be a certain way for me to have any well-being. You know, that's not what we're training our minds to understand here. So that's not true. And, you know, there, we could think of many ways that uh, old stories like that, old decisions, uh, un have a huge undercurrent of how we are uh, walking around in the world and what we have opportunity for and not. 
It's not that a lot of that opportunity will bring us any happiness. I mean, <laughs> that's an interesting way to think about it, that all of the things that were denied actually don't have any great source of happiness in them anyway. So, so that's the first, uh, the first type of measurement that the Buddha talked about, Jatamana, the measurement of birth. And it would be interesting to see the eyeing and myeing, and don't definitely don't do a lot of thinking about it, but see if it gives rise to where that might have come from. You don't want to really think about this. And then the second type of uh, the second type of uh, mana or conceit, and this one, boy, this one is here a lot. <laughs> and that's panya mana, panya knowledge or wisdom, conceit of knowledge or wisdom. How many times have I mentioned that I'm a college professor? (laughs) (laughs) Boy, that one is pretty stuck in there. The conceit of education or knowledge. And, you know, neither of these things are are necessarily inherently bad, but it it just is that they condition a lot of, um, they condition a lot of uh, views that are based on greed, hatred, and delusion, and panyamana. And how does that, how does that manifest in us? It's that we don't even realize how much that we measure ourselves against everybody in our life. I mean, it could be that we have panyamana about knowing the Dharma. I remember once I was at a uh, mindfulness conference and, the, and the, um, the keynote speaker was talking about, you know, people doing MBSR, are they even doing mindfulness? You know, what are they doing? Do they really understand what mindfulness is? And then he made a comment like, I don't know what all of you are doing. I know Bonnie's teaching mindfulness because she's at like IMS and Spirit Rock, but the rest of you, I don't even trust that you're doing it. And have any of you ever thought that? I'm on the month long. (laughs) When I teach in BSR, I'm teaching the real thing. Or just that comparison of people who are teaching this tradition and maybe don't have access to this experience, and, you know, don't have this uh, depth of um, opportunity to really go so deep in the practice. Other ways that Panyamana might show up is, um, you know, I work harder, I understand better, I'm just smarter, I have more capacity to understand and to uh, really go deep. And then there's a, you know, there's definitely uh, a, um, a hidden and latent torment about who you attribute knowledge and uh, knowledge and um, education and wisdom to, right? Okay, I'm going to mention again now that I'm a college professor. <laughs> There's a book out that is very popular among uh, some of us college professors that's called um, Presumed Incompetent. And it's a book about, you know, a lot of women in higher education and women of color 
that, and it's not, you know, it's not like people decide, I'm gonna feel this way about you. It's having grown up in uh, a system where this panyamana is so invisible, it's such a latent torment, it just conditions, you know, those vipalasas. It conditions how we perceive things and, you know, what we think and then hardens into our view. And that has an impact on uh, us walking around in the world, not even realizing how much more we attribute to somebody saying something than somebody else. But it might be an interesting thing to look at if you notice that. It's interesting. And it's not personal. Please don't think, and I'm not trying to trigger anybody, because I see it right here all the time. And it isn't personal. So that's uh, better than mana, right? Better than panyamana. And then there's worse than panyamana. And a lot of it is, actually, I think this has had an impact lately, that, you know, people who are highly educated are really just don't get us and they are elitists and I don't care what they think and I've got different values and I'm gonna vote those values or I'm going to express myself this way. I'm gonna invest in something that isn't so haughty and doesn't think it always knows the right answer. So people who have, uh, and they might not even realize that that is one of the sources of some of the decisions that we have that, uh, you know, educated people look down on me and I'm tired of that because I've got uh, equality mana. We're all the same. <laughs> I'm measuring and I believe we're all the same. And then equal to mana, that no one deserves special treatment or special attention. You know, affirmative action to you know, that's not right. I mean, that's not right. Every, everybody should have an equal opportunity at everything. And then, you know, those of, those of um, our wonderful sanghas who maybe aspire to be Dharma teachers, it's like, why is that such a, uh, no one understands who gets picked to do that. And you know, what's the process of that? It's not very transparent. There's something really, uh, really unfair about that and something, you know, that we, uh, we just can't understand. So this is what uh, Sayada Utejaniya says about that. Holding on to a preconceived idea of view of what insight might be like is dangerous as it leads to pride when you have an experience that seems to fit an idea. The nature of reality is beyond ideas and views. Ideas and views are merely the work of delusion. And then, so those were the first two kinds. That was birth mana and knowledge or wisdom mana. Or it could be, you know, the other way it's expressed. And this is expressed amongst, um, you know, the people who are teaching the Dharma in the West. It's like, you know... Saida Utejaniya versus Mahasi tradition versus the Thai forest tradition versus our Tibetan relatives. And, uh, you know, this is the way we should be training. A lot of that. So those are uh, the first two. And I love this next one. And that is Dhanamana. <laughs> 
dana mana, the conceit of wealth. Dana mana. So I said this before and, I, and somebody got triggered, so should I say it? We love our rich friends, we do, and, and it has nothing to do, I mean, uh, it has nothing to do inherently with wealth, it's just how we take that to be, uh, how we take that to be our identities and how we uh, are either arrogant about that or, um, you know, have that as an identity of worse than and not as good as because maybe we're broke or, um, you know, the same as mana. It's nothing inherent in the money that does it. It's how we cling to that and create an identity about it. But, um, you know, we, and we love our rich donors. We do. They're an important part of our sangha. And sometimes they can be special needs yogis, you know, who just need a little bit of extra care. And they might think that without even realizing it. And it could be teachers, teachers who come in on retreat and say, actually, I did that. <laughs> I did that when I sat my last retreat. I, I switched at the last minute from sitting part two of the three months to sitting a month with Ajahn Suchita, which was like everybody's thing to do. And I ask, oh, you know, I'm doing so much work for IMS. Any chance that I could go from this retreat to that retreat? And in the end, I was able to do that. And that was definitely, and well, it wasn't wealth, but it was probably maybe a panyamana or some type of a privilege that I was afforded at that. And me thinking that, you know, I deserved that. Part of that isn't, it isn't always unwholesome to think that. What's unwholesome is to create the identity of a person that's getting that. The Bonnie who has these qualities and that qualities, rather than just a flowing experience that's changing all the time. So that's what I'm trying to say here. So, uh, Donna Mana. So what does it feel like to have our identities determined by our access to money or our access to wealth? Personally, for me, I grew up pretty working class or even less than working class, pretty poor. And, um, you know, my father was very smart. He uh, was a, an electrician and he... Uh, sent all of his five kids to Catholic school in San Francisco. And what he would do is he was actually provide free electrical services to the schools as a form of tuition. It was pretty smart of him. So we all got, you know, a private Catholic school education. So that was the beginning of my panyamana. <laughs> But um, so it's interesting having grown up pretty poor and then essentially, you know, having a pretty good income now, I can see how that does affect my sense of self. You know, just the idea that I can, and th for me, this is what it's telling. And you guys might be able to see this in yourselves as well, however it shows up for you. But for me, going into a grocery store and knowing I can have anything I want in there. That is like a big deal. And that's part of my identity of privilege. Like I can have anything I want in here, which is not true of most of the world. And you know, that is unconscious to me a lot of the time. 
But when I'm on retreat, you know, particularly if I don't like what's for dinner, <laughs> it's like if I was at home, this is what I would be eating or whatever. It's a way that the eyeing and mining shows up for us or the stories that we tell or the thoughts that we have. The thoughts that arise are creating these senses of self. So that is um, dana mana. So what is worse than dana mana? I had to apply for a scholarship and I got a scholarship to come here. And they are so lucky that I came here because I'm diversifying this group. (laughs) You know, we come in with these identities that are just so latent or unconscious to us. Or maybe we feel like everybody's looking at us and feeling like we just don't fit in here because we look like we're broke or something. I don't fit in, or we feel like everyone is looking at us because we don't fit in. Or equal to mana, you know, like the, uh, the business model of Donna on retreats. I don't know if that's working. Sometimes the teachers feel that. <laughs> so that's the third type of mana. The first one, again, is birth mana, the knowledge or wisdom mana, then dana mana, conceit of money, how that creates identities for us, particularly in this wonderful culture that we live in. You know, we interpret getting treated good or bad by maybe what we have to offer monetarily. And then the fourth one is one that we are all probably used to, and that is the conceit of appearance. And we can see how that is very obvious. As we age, particularly for women, I don't know, it's probably for men as well. Do you notice how you disappear (laughs) as we age? We used to be someone people would look at or notice coming in. And then the older we get, we just seem to get more and more invisible. Well, that's one way. I'm sure that's not true for everybody, but. And then we know what, uh, what, uh, what norms there are around physical beauty, right? Tall, thin, healthy, straight hair, light skin, physically fit. And, you know, we could be walking around in the world and not even realizing that. But I know, you know, I mean, I have dear friends who've sat in this seat who are absolutely gorgeous. And, uh, you know, it doesn't always work out for them that they're getting all of the, you know, good, um, they're getting very positive reviews by anybody. So it's not just, uh, you know, based on physical appearance. It's a little bit more complicated than that. But that is one way that we judge ourselves. You know, I've got to lose 10 pounds and I should be walking up the hill instead of taking that cart. And, um, and then we, we uh, gauge others as, as well on that. Like, you know, that person should be exercising more or why are they taking that second 
helping of food, and we judge ourselves that way as well. Like we don't deserve a second, you know, uh, a second um, little, um, what are those patties? (laughs) Power flower cake, that's what it was. (laughs) You know, somehow that's, connected to our parents and it defines who we are for just one second. You know, all of these are so latent, but for a second it, it arises and that thought creates the self that's in that moment. So how does uh, a parent's conceit show up, you know? Are you, how well do you fit within what the norm is about what an attractive person is? Uh, you know, there's worse than uh, appearance conceit where, you know, you don't like yourself because of this aspect, how your hair looks, how tall you are, maybe the color of your skin, the texture of your hair, the clothes that you wear, you know, maybe, which is uh, not uncommon, that you don't fit into a binary definition of gender, which is pretty a pretty new concept, actually. And... Um, you know, that can have having people look at us and not, you know, maybe us thinking that they're seeing certain things in us that may or may not be true, but that's a lot of suffering. And then equal to. What does equal to uh, a parent's mono look like? Even when we're with our best friends, we're judging, right? It's like an unconscious way that we, that we make ourselves, even when we're with the people that we love and love us. Our peeps, our peers, there's a judgment of, oh, that's cuter than what I'm wearing, or wow, you're healthier than me, or some way that eyeing and myeing, or this I am is happening, this I am, this I am, the measurement. And in the suttas, they have a wonderful list of how that shows up. Uh, Intoxication and aversion to family name, to health, to youth, to how much we gain, to how much we're honored or respected, how much people defer to us, to how many followers that we have with wealth, with beauty, with learning, with seniority, like, you know, I've been here the longest. With alms food, like, you know, I get the best food or whatever. Um, Being blame-free or success, that's a huge measure you know, thoughts that we have about how success manifests, how it shows up. Supporters, fame, moral virtue. I have more sila than most of my sangha. (laughs) Jhana, I've got better concentration. I'm a better artist. I'm taller. And, you know, all of these are uh, not inherently bad, any of these qualities. It's the measurement and the creation of the self out of them that I'm talking about. So how do we handle that? These are, you know, again, latent torments. It's the way we make the self. So what are the antidotes to this? How do we work skillfully with the latent torments? So I I started off by saying that... um, that, The Buddha taught his son, Rahula, that you should really look at this. This is something you should look at in your meditation. See how you are, uh, see how you're creating yourself, how uh, 
you know, how you're making yourself with these thoughts. This is something that you should see. And this is what he said in the um, Mana, uh, Mana Anusya Sutta. Mana Anusya Sutta. And this is uh, the Buddha talking to Rahula. Well, this is Rahula first talking to his father. He says, Venerable Sir, how should one know how should one see so that in regard to this body with consciousness and in regard to all external signs, eye-making, mind-making, and the underlying tendency to conceit no longer occur within? And the Buddha says to his son, any kind of form whatsoever, Rahula, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, one sees all form, all physica physicality, rupa, sees all rupa, all form, as it really is with correct wisdom thus. This is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. And he actually taught him to do those reflections, particularly when he could feel that clinging or when he couldn't feel that clinging to do the reflections this is not mine, this is not, this I am not, this is not myself. And then the Buddha goes on. So that was the first of uh, the five aggregates, right, form. And then the second one, any kind of feeling whatsoever. And the third one, any kind of perception whatsoever, any kind of volitional formation whatsoever, any kind of consciousness whatsoever, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, one sees all of the five aggregates as it really is with correct wisdom thus. This is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. So what would that look like? Sitting and with our mindfulness. When we're just caught feeling so bad or so good, you know, with this creation of a self to just sit back and, you know, even say to ourselves, I know I can't see it now, but the truth is, this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. Even if I can't see it now, I set the intention to see that clearly. And when you can see it clearly, to really soak that up with your mindfulness, to see clearly how it's not personal, to see how it is a mental factor floating through awareness with a beginning and a middle and an end. This is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. I have a list of like, 15 different reflections, but I'm running out of time. Maybe I'll st give you a few of them. When someone praises us, think the words are directed at a person behind us. <laughs> <laughs> or visualize your teacher at your heart. Or the Buddha at your heart. That the person is actually com uh, is, uh, praising the Buddha. This is antidotes to praise, wanting praise and approval. Think, someone torturing me doesn't cause me to take unfortunate rebirths, but attachment to praise does. That's a good one. 
Recall that other people are difficult to please. They may please us now, but later may be jealous or competitive. They get angry when we don't agree with them. Therefore, what's the use of being attached to praise and approval? <laughs> praise can lead to arrogance, which is a huge obstac obstacle to clear seeing. Praise doesn't bring us positive potential for future lives, long life, strength, good health, or comfort. It doesn't increase our love and compassion or help our Dharma practice. So what use is it? Someone praising us doesn't mean we possess the qualities that they say we have. <laughs> our, more, our more reliable way to develop self-confidence is by understanding our potential to become a fully enlightened being. I love that. To just say, yeah, we have Buddha nature. We have that capacity. When we have the quality that is being praised, remember that it is not ours. We have that good quality due to the kindness of those who raised us and to those who taught us and showed us the way. And just, just reflect that people who praise us will criticize us five minutes later. We can't take the praise with us when, he, when we die. Sweet words are like an echo. Just as an echo depends on rocks, wind, vibration, and so on, the words praising us depend on many factors. They're the uh, cause of many, many causes and conditions. And, you know, the person praising and in the person being praised. So those are some reflections on conceit. And I'll end with this, a little bit of a long poem. It's called Pasura the Deba Debater. Difficult people settle for different versions of the truth. You say, your way's best. You claim, this is the way to purity and only this. You all gather to discuss the truth, each one believing the others got it wrong. You base your claims on what others tell you. You quarrel, wanting praise, saying that you know best. You're arguing at a gathering, hoping for praise, fearing the failure which leaves you downcast, f furious at their jibs. How can you get them? When your opponents find flaws in your argument, you refute it and lament and grieve, wailing, they've defeated me. Ascetics quarrel like this. They have hang-ups and downs as they win and lose. You see what they're like. Give up debate. Ascetics only do it for praise. If you make your point and win, the group praises your ideas. You laugh, swell up with pride. That pride will bring you down but you're still arrogant, swollen with conceit. Don't you see there's no point to dispute? The wise tell us that quarreling and purity don't mix. Like a hero fed at the king's table who wars at his rival, run away, you've no reason to fight. When people argue, defending a set view and saying, this is the only way, just tell them you don't want to argue. There are people who live free from argument, who don't set one view against another, who have nothing more to attain. They have no self you can argue with, Pasura. 
Thinking about different ideas just confuses you. Now you've met a purified being. You can't escape the truth. So let's sit for a minute. May all beings be free from measurement, from conceiving self through measurement. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.